prayer. Thank you, Father, for giving us the precious scriptures that we have in our possession that we might come to know you better, that our lives might be directed into paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We do ask that you would give us a true gratitude and appreciation for the treasure that is before us, that we would treat it as a treasure, that we would study it intently, that we would be sincere in our desire to understand it better and to obey it more fully. And we thank you for the precious truths that are communicated in your word, the truths of the fulfillment of your promise of salvation, the sending of your Son, and the once-for-all accomplishment of salvation that we now enjoy. We do pray that you might teach us to glorify you as saved people, to set Jesus Christ before us, that we might live a life that's pleasing to him, that we might emulate his life, but that above all, we might set forth the wonder of who he is and what he has done to all about us. We ask that this evening you would bless us as we study the word of Christ, that we might come to know him better, for it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Tonight we begin Hebrews, the 10th chapter, and it will be my hope to get through the first 10 verses of the chapter. Okay, these skeptical looks are not at all fair to your pastor. Um, I will not rush just so that we meet that deadline, because uh, I don't think you want to be deprived of anything that is there that might be for our benefit, but that is going to be my, my hope, that the first ten verses can be covered. Let's read them together. Hebrews 10, beginning at the first verse. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, <clears throat> which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw nigh. Else would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance made of sins year by year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice an offering thou wouldst not, but a body didst thou prepare for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hadst no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I am come, in the roll of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. The saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst the uh, pleasure therein, the which are offered according to the law. Then hath he said, Lo, I am come to do thy will. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By which will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And thus far, God's word. The first four verses of chapter 10 in Hebrews are intended to summarize and demonstrate the inadequacy of the old Levitical order with its priesthood and sacrifices, the inadequacy of that order in comparison to the completely sufficient priesthood and sacrifice of Christ himself. 
And there are four ways in particular that the author summarizes the inadequacy of the old Levitical system. Four ways in particular. And we'll spend a little bit of time on each one. Number one, in the first verse we read that the Levitical system was insubstantial. The Levitical system lacked substance. It was insubstantial. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year make, uh, which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw nigh. The author tells us that the law contained a shadow, that the law did not actually bring the good things to come. We know from chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, that in the thinking of our author, the Levitical system is closely bound up with the Mosaic law or the Old Covenant. Leviticus 7, verses 11 and 12. Now, if there was perfection through the Levitical priesthood, for under it hath the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be reckoned after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So priesthood and law uh, go together in his thinking. These two are part of one system called the Old Covenant, or what he will later call the First Covenant. Now, the priesthood and the law being so tied together, in chapter 10, he says you need to realize that this law, as glorious as it may be, contained only a shadow. The law, uh, and remember, he's not saying the law itself was a shadow. He says, for the law having a shadow or possessing a shadow. The law contained a shadow of the good things to come. It did not contain the very image of those things. Chapter 8, verse 5. Speaking of the, um, the priesthood and the Levitical service of the Old Covenant, verse 5 tells us, "...who serve that which is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, even as Moses is warned of God when he's about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern that was showed thee in the mount." So the author has already introduced to us this idea of a shadow, in chapter 8, the shadow is the earthly tabernacle and its service, which is a replica, a representation of the true presence of God, the true tabernacle of God, which is in heaven. And so we have heaven, if you imagine that up here, the presence of God, and then a reflection of that in shadow form on earth in the tabernacle. However, in chapter 10, verse 1, when he speaks of the law containing a shadow, he is thinking not simply of the earthly tabernacle being a shadow of the heavenly reality, which might be considered a simply metaphysical distinction between the ultimate reality and the shadow on earth. But now in chapter 10, he thinks of a historical distinction 
Now the tabernacle is a shadow of something that's going to come later. It's a what we would call foreshadow of the coming reality, Jesus Christ and his priesthood and saving work on the cross. Now that provokes a little bit of thought. In chapter 8, the shadow is, if you will, directed upwards. It's the shadow of what's in heaven. In chapter 10, the shadow is of what is coming in history. So then what should we consider the relationship between that which has come in history and that which is in heaven, at least in the days of Moses? Is what came in history also just the shadow of the heavenly reality? Well, you know that it's not because we've already been told in chapter 9 that when Jesus died on the cross and so forth, that his saving work was performed in the very presence of God. And so Jesus is not just a better shadow of the heavenly reality. What Jesus did is the heavenly reality. And so we have a double sense of shadow, which would imply what? that the reality of what was looked up to in the Old Covenant has come to earth, has been accomplished in our very midst. We have Jesus coming into history and there performing a work which was adequate in the very presence of God in heaven to save us. The Levitical system was a shadow of good things to come, not just a shadow of things above, at the very throne of God, but of things which are coming in history. Now, we often use the expression foreshadow, and I trust all of you have already thought about this, but it does well for us to pause and do it again. A foreshadow is a strange idea, isn't it? A shadow looking ahead to a reality that does not yet exist. A shadow requires a reality, doesn't it? You need an object, and then the light shines on the object, and it casts a shadow. And we would, in that sense, think of the shadow as coming after the reality. The shadow is at least behind the reality. And we would use that preposition in English, I think. You have the light here, you have the object here, and the shadow is cast behind it, or comes after it. But here we're speaking of a foreshadow. The law contained a shadow of good things to come. Jesus Christ is not secondary to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is secondary to Jesus Christ. It contains the shadow. He is the reality. And even though he comes after the Old Testament, he is the substance of which the Old Testament was the shadow. A very fascinating idea. Now, what's the difference between a shadow and the object of which it is the shadow? Is there no connection at all? Are they completely identical? Doug, which is it? Complete identity or complete difference between shadow and reality? A little of both. Do you want to amplify? <laughs> well, let's, let's see if we, I mean, sometimes we get a little worried that maybe Dr. Bonson has set us up here, right? <laughs> Trust me, I, I don't do that to my students. What, um, 
Is the shadow the same as the object itself? Let's imagine that we have a, a shadow of a automobile. Now, can you drive the automobile to the beach? Yes. Can you drive the shadow to the beach? No. So, are they identical? No. In fact, the shadow is quite inferior, isn't it? You wouldn't prefer a shadow of a car to a car itself. And of course, the author wants us to get that point. Why would you prefer the Levitical system being followed in Jerusalem when you have the reality that that shadow is all about? But now, what if someone comes along and says, okay, there's no connection between Old and New Covenants then? Absolutely, perfectly distinct. Because after all, you can drive a car, you can't drive a shadow of a car. Well, there is some connection between shadow and reality. After all, when you look at the shadow, at least if, if it has sufficient detail, and it's not just like at 12 noon, like a blob underneath it, you look at the shadow, you see the form of the car, don't you? And so you can identify this shadow as being the shadow of, of your car. And although many cars are pretty close in design, so this is not a great illustration, you can certainly tell the difference between the shadow of a Volkswagen bug or rabbit and the shadow of a stretch limousine, the shadow of a Cadillac. Because the form of the shadow is related to the reality of which it is the shadow. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us that formally speaking, the old covenant is like what Jesus will do, but it doesn't have the substance. It has the form, but not the substance. It has the outline, but it doesn't have the solid uh, reality, the body, if you will, that is necessary. That, that imagery reminds me of uh, Colossians, the second chapter. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. In verse 16 of Colossians 2, Paul says, Let no man therefore judge you with respect to meat or drink or a feast day of new moon or of Sabbath day, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is Christ. The very same concept, the shadow of things to come. Those festivals, those sacrifices, those offerings were formally like what was coming, but the body, the substance, is Christ. Okay, so we feel quite justified from a biblical standpoint in covenant circles in seeing a continuity between old and new covenants even with respect to the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is not followed today in substance. And why is that? Well, one clever way to answer the question is, is because the ceremonial law never had substance, it was only form. It was shadow. So we don't follow the shadows, we follow the reality that those shadows formed, were formed by. So now that Christ has come, we don't offer animal sacrifices. Now that Christ has come, we don't have a temple in Jerusalem. Now that Christ has come, we don't have a Levitical priesthood, and so forth and so on. But the form of those things we do have because we have the substance of which they were the shadow. We do have a high priest. We do have a sacrifice. We do have a temple. All New Testament realities. And we have a real problem in a naturalistic, materialistic environment like the 20th century. 
because we grow up thinking that reality is found in what you can touch. The spiritual is ethereal. The spiritual is vague. It's <clears throat> we're not real sure of its substantiality. But the author of Hebrews says, back in the old covenant, when they could actually touch the priest and touch the temple and touch the sacrifices and so forth, that was only the shadow. That was just a mere form. The reality is the spiritual truth that has been brought and the spiritual accomplishment, the spiritual status that we have through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, you could touch Jesus. You could touch his cross, those sorts of things. But we don't touch Jesus today. We don't touch his cross today. We don't touch a temple today. We don't go and talk face to face with a priest today. And yet we have more reality in our um, religious experience than did the Old Testament Jews who could reach right out and touch. Not just someone that they call, but they could reach out and touch all of these things, and they were only shadows. Pardon me. The author of Hebrews, just to confirm that this is his thinking, Paula? First, we have to ask, what were the dietary laws intending to teach? Separation. That's right, separation. If you look in Leviticus, you notice that God says um, that the Jews were not to mingle their fibers, they were not to mingle seed in their fields, and they were not to mingle clean and unclean meats. They were not to bring these two together. They were to make a separation. And God says, because I have made a separation of you from the world from all the other nations on earth, you have been set aside. And so there's a pedagogical symbol, a teaching symbol that God gives to show that separation. So he says, now look, you live this way. Don't mingle your fibers, don't mingle your seed, don't mingle clean and unclean meats. Okay, now with the coming of the new covenant, the, break, the, the uh, separation of Jew and Gentile has been put away. Now Jew and Gentile stand in one body in the church, as Paul says in Ephesians. How did that come about? Well, you remember historically in the book of Acts, Peter was told by God in a vision to go preach the gospel to Cornelius, the first Gentile to enter the church. And how did God tell him that it was all right to do that? He has a sheet let down from heaven, and on that sheet are all these unclean meats. God says, go ahead and eat them, Peter. Peter says, oh no, I'd never do that. I wouldn't eat anything unclean, Lord. And what does God say? What I have cleansed, let no man call unclean. And so what the, what the dietary laws of the Old Testament pointed to is the separation of God's people from the world. In the Old Covenant, that took the form of a Jewish nation over against the Gentiles. God says that's no longer the case. Now it's all right for Jews and Gentiles to become one in Christ, in the church of Jesus Christ. So that was foreshadowing the... Um, the separation of God's people from the world. You say, well, do we keep the dietary laws today? Again, we don't keep them in their shadow form. We keep them in the substance of which they were, te well, that they taught all along, which is God's people separate from the world. Are we supposed to marry unbelievers? No. Are we supposed to mingle with unbelievers and make religious covenant with unbelievers? No. We're supposed to be separate from them. In fact, 
We read in 2 Corinthians 6, Come out from among them and touch no unclean thing, saith the Lord. And so we have the same principle of separating God's people from the world ethically. But the separation is now defined not in its shadow form, Jew and Gentile, but in its substance, saved and lost, world and church. Willie? Some, I mean, textual. Yes. Um, I can I can give you something better. If you will pick up my book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, Chapter Nine, I believe it is, deals with the ceremonial law, and I go into this in that chapter. And then it's also found in I don't know the number, but one of the chapters in uh, By This Standard, and um, I, d I believe you'll find it in the chapter dealing with the discontinuity between the covenants. And uh, in that chapter, I will talk about uh, the dietary laws and how they are fulfilled today. And um, there you can get all of the uh, biblical references that you'll need, I think. I'm sorry, I won't try to do that very often. I know there's some people who say, well, look up in my book here, look at my book there, and they never answer any questions. But since these are just for addresses of verses, I think you can find them better that way than my looking them up for you right now. Okay, we're not making very much progress here, Dr. Bonson. Let's move ahead. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things. The Greek word is icon. Not the very icon of things to come. Now we might take our understanding of icon and think, well, the law doesn't have, the law has a shadow, not the icon, not the symbol. But you see the word icon here stands for the very manifestation of something. It's used elsewhere in Greek where it doesn't have the insubstantial notion that we would think of in our English word icon. It's spelled differently, although I think the two are probably um, etymologically connected. But in, in the Greek, notice how very image or very icon of the things stands over against shadow. This is the true manifestation of the good things to come. So the first thing we see that's wrong with the Levitical system is that it's insubstantial. Let me move on to the second point tonight. The Levitical system was also repetitive. Now, we don't like repetition, usually because it bores us. We don't like repetition because we want things you know, to move ahead and give us something new and all that. But that's not the objection of the author here. Here, he's reasoning that if the Levitical system was repetitive, then it was not final. It was not adequate. Because anything that has to be done over and over and over again is not perfect, is it? Once you've done it perfectly, once you've done it adequately, you don't do it again. Can't you think of many illustrations in your own experience where that's true? Okay, let's say that you want to write a letter. We probably never are perfectly satisfied with the letters that we write, but say you want to write a letter. It's a very sensitive thing, so you write it once. But you're not really happy with it, and you write it again. Not really happy with that, you write it again. Finally, about, what, 19th, 20th draft, you say, ah, that's it. It's the way I want it. And once you get to the place where you say, ah, that's it, do you go back and say, well, I think just for fun, I'll write it a 21st and 22nd time, too. Of course not. Once you reach 
what you were intending to do, you stop. And the only reason you kept writing that letter is because it wasn't done right. It had not finally accomplished the effect that you wanted. The Levitical system was repetitive in the same way because its effect was inconclusive. The Levitical system never finally arrived at salvation. And so it had to be done again and again and again. This theme of repetition has already been emphasized by the author. Uh, look at chapter 7, verse 27. Who needeth not daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He only had to do it once. They do it continually. And in chapter 9, verse 25, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Repetition is incongruous with finality. You only repeat something because it is inconclusive in its effect. And what the author tells us in Hebrews is that the Levitical system was unable to make anything perfect. For the law containing a shadow of the good things to come, not the very manifestation of those things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year which they offer continually make perfect them that draw nigh. And then he asks this question, or else why wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? That if they finally accomplished the perfection that was looked for, why would they continue to offer them? The author is speaking now to the Jews. He says, you know your history. Ask yourself, if those sacrifices were acceptable to God and they accomplished the salvation that they were supposed to, why were they repeated and repeated and repeated? You know that they were not good enough. They had to be looking ahead to something that would be more adequate. The Levitical system was unable to make anything perfect. Chapter 9, verse 9 uses similar language, which is a figure for the time present, according to which are offered gifts and sacrifices that cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect. Okay. The Levitical system was insubstantial, and the Levitical system was repetitive, therefore ineffective. Thirdly, the Levitical system constantly reminded of sin. The Levitical system constantly reminded of sin. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw nigh. Or else, why wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would have had no more consciousness of sins. If those sacrifices had actually cleansed them of their sins, there would not have been this constant reminder of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance made of sins year by year. I wonder if you can really feel not only the hopefulness of the Old Covenant foreshadow of good things to come, but also the oppressiveness of the Old Covenant. We take for granted that once we've prayed the sinner's prayer, once we've been converted, that Jesus has once and for all taken care of our sins. And we don't, week by week and day by day or year by year, 
have to be reminded, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice of those sins. But the Old Covenant did. Bloody sacrifice, bloody sacrifice, bloody sacrifice, a continual declaration that you are sinful, that you are sinful, that you are sinful. The author says, because the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would have had no more consciousness, or if you will, no more conscience, uh, a conscience that's weighed down with guilt, no more guilty conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices, there was a remembrance made of sins year by year. In those sacrifices, there continued a consciousness of sin, the radical awareness of one's guilt and one's doom because of the bloodiness of the sacrifice. Those sacrifices not only reminded men of their sins, but those sacrifices testified that God remembered their sins. Now we begin to see, don't let me miss my punchline here, now we begin to see some of the wonder of the new covenant. Because the promise made in the new covenant is what? Look at chapter 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. What a radical difference. The old covenant constantly reminds men and God of the sin of the people. But God says in the new covenant, something will be done whereby I will remember sin no more. I really, uh, that makes me very happy to know the privilege of being a new covenant believer, that God is not going to keep bringing it up to me over and over and over again, that Christ once and for all handled it. Okay, Elry. I understand how That's the very next line in my notes. Let me carry out this contrast between Old and New Covenant. Old Covenant, constant reminder of sin in the bloody sacrifices week by week, year by year. New Covenant, no more remembrance of sin. But Jesus does say in the New Covenant, here is this ordinance remembering his death, right? His bloody sacrifice for our salvation. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. But notice that what we are remembering then, we are called upon in the Lord's Supper, week by week, to remember Christ and his saving work in our behalf. That is, this is a remembrance of grace, not a remembrance of guilt. Where the bloody sacrifices of the old covenant repeated our guilt and our guilt and our guilt, Jesus says, remember the grace that I have poured out. Remember what I did for you and once and for all, ending all sacrifice so that you would know God won't remember your sins anymore. So it's amazing. We do have the repetition in the New Covenant, but it's a repetition based upon a once-for-all accomplishment, so it remembers grace rather than remembering guilt. Ron? How can you separate Well, I think you separate them, not in the conceptual sense that there is... Um, uh, you could have grace without that which the grace deals with, the guilt of man. You separate them because what is driven home to the heart of man 
and the sacrifice of Christ is God's grace in forgiving us once and for all. Whereas what was being driven home to the heart of man by the Day of Atonement over and over again in the Old Covenant was, yes, a foreshadow of good things to come, but the constant reminder, blood sacrifice, you're guilty. And so it, it, I would put it this way. The author is telling us the leading, the driving edge of Old Testament teaching was condemnation and guilt, whereas the constant reminder of the New Covenant is the accomplishment of salvation and God's grace. Now, that's not just Dr. Bonson's made-up idea of how he's doing this. If you look at 2 Corinthians 3, how does Paul characterize the difference between Old and New Covenants? Not that the Old Covenant had no grace and the New Covenant has no condemnation, but nevertheless, Paul does distinguish between the leading thrust of Old Covenant religion and the leading thrust of New Covenant religion. 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 6, who made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Where, remember, letter is the law of God, Spirit is the Holy Spirit of God. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven on stones, came with glory, so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly upon the face of Moses for the glory of his face, which glory was passing away, how shall not rather the ministration of the Spirit be with glory? For if the ministration of condemnation hath glory, much rather doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. And so what Paul here says is, both of these covenants are glorious. The old covenant has its glory, the new covenant has its glory. But in the old covenant, that glorious covenant was still called a ministration of condemnation and death the New Covenant, a ministration of the Holy Spirit and life. Was the Holy Spirit active in the Old Covenant? Yes. Is there condemnation and indictment of sins in the New Covenant? Yes. What's the difference? Emphasis. The emphasis, the driving, leading edge of the Old Covenant was tables of stone condemning you. In the New Covenant, the law written upon the heart giving us new life. So we have both elements and old and new, but there has been a shift of emphasis in the new. And so the author of Hebrews does the same thing. There was constant reminders of sacrifice, of the need for blood atonement, constant reminders of sin. But it was, according to him, in the Old Covenant, a consciousness, the weighing down of condemnation in sin that was driven home to the heart in the re uh, repetition of the Day of Atonement. In the New Testament, the repeating of the Lord's Supper, though it remembers death and bloody sacrifice, it is a remembrance of God's grace, that it's been accomplished once and for all, and God promises, I will remember it no more. Let me move on to the next, the fourth point. The sacrifices of the Old Covenant were ineffective, the author says, too. Verse 4, For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Impossible? What kind of impossibility is this, Doug? Is this an antecedent impossibility or a consequent impossibility? Is he saying it's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin because God has said so? And so, consequent upon his declaration of his will, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away? No, I don't think so. It's been interpreted that way by some uh, religious philosophers. 
I think the author is saying God himself could not have ever been satisfied with the blood of bulls and goats. The impossibility is not just because God has said so and therefore now it's impossible, but it's rather an antecedent impossibility. Even before God said anything, he couldn't have said this. Now, are we trying to have something outside of God bind God? Are we trying to say there's some principle above God that keeps him from declaring the blood of bulls and goats is adequate? Now, where does that impossibility come from? Doug? From the very nature of God. God, by his very nature, cannot accept the death of an animal in the place of what? The death of his own image. For you see, animals are not the image of God. Animals lack communion with God, rationality, articulation, verbal, if you will, articulation. Animals lack moral responsibility. And so an animal is, I know our animal rights people would not like to hear this, but it's a fact in Scripture, animals are beneath humans in dignity. Animals are not equal to us, either in rights or privileges. And so God, by his very nature, cannot accept the death of an animal in the place of a death of his own image. But now, who is the image of God above all measure? Who, par excellence, is the very manifestation of the nature of God? Jesus Christ, right? Isn't he, according to Hebrews 1.3, let's turn back, being the effulgence of his glory and the very image of his substance? And so an animal could never, because it was not the image of God, be a substitute for that which is the image of God. God rather sent his own son, the very, what? Exact representation or image of his substance. God sent one who would not only be God himself, but also the perfect image of God in human nature. Only Christ could be a substitute for us. And that is not because God just arbitrarily willed it that way, but because by his own nature that was required. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Animals are not a true substitute, not only because they're beneath the dignity of man, but also because they're not ethically perfect. Think about that. Animals are not ethically perfect. But you see, I'm not saying the opposite. I'm not saying they're ethically imperfect either. Because what am I saying? They're not ethical at all. And so since sin is an ethical matter, and the punishment of sin is due to unethical living, that which doesn't even have an ethical component or evaluation cannot be a substitute for the sinner. Now verses 5 to 7. Consequently, when he comes into the world, he says, who's the he? Who is the he? It is Christ. But let me point out something interesting from a grammatical standpoint. Marilyn, I think you'll appreciate this. Where is the antecedent to the word he, if it is Jesus Christ? Now, you will be able to find it if you go back far enough. But look how far back you have to go. I want to suggest to you that that is not intended as the antecedent. It fits in. It's all right. 
But he's not really saying he, referring back to verse 28. I think the author is just saying the one who comes into the world. He's using that as a title for Jesus, for when he comes into the world. So it's not like the one I talked about in verse 28. He's just using this from scratch, as it were, as a way of designating Jesus, the coming one. And the reason I say that is it turns out that this is a way that the New Testament speaks of Jesus. Let me give you some examples. Uh, John 6, verse 14. Turn back in the Gospels to John 6, 14. When therefore the people saw the sign which he did, they said, This is of a truth, the prophet that cometh into the world. John 11, verse 27. She saith unto him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, even he that cometh into the world. And then, of course, there are other New Testament passages like 1 Timothy 1.15. Please turn tape over at this time. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. He came into the world. Jesus is the one designated in the Bible as having come into the world. And so the author of Hebrews doesn't worry about a grammatical antecedent. I think he just picks it up right there. Therefore, when he comes into the world... Now, I'm not sure if I'm communicating as well as I'd like kind of the significance of this. The author is writing from, I mean, there's something going on. He has a certain mentality. There is already a certain measure of teaching that has taken place. There is a common way of thinking among the Christians so that he can do that. You cannot write to someone the first time and make that kind of grammatical mistake and expect to be understood. But he could expect his readers to know, I'm talking about Jesus, he who comes into the world. Okay? So it, what I'm saying is this presupposes something, a relationship between them, and a certain body of teaching or a certain theological mentality and outlook. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, the author puts on the lips of Jesus coming into the world a quotation from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. Sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body did you prepare for me. And whole burnt offering and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I am come, in the roll of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. The author says, Jesus came into the world, and that declaration of the psalmist was in fact a messianic prophecy of what Jesus says, as it were, coming into the world. Why did Jesus come into the world? Jesus is the coming one, but why did he come? Now, I've written down for myself a list of New Testament answers, and I don't pretend that it's totally complete. There may be two or three that are missing. But I've tried to collect most of the New Testament statements about why Jesus came into the world. We're going to kind of do this, and I'd like to see just from memory, or if you're scooting around in your Bible without the help of a concordance, how many can you remember? Why did Jesus come into the world? Let's try to rehearse a few. I won't take too long, but... Uh, that's right, 1 John chapter 4, excuse me, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. To save his... Well, he will be called Jesus because he saves his people from his sins. 
there, there is a declaration that he came into the world to save sinners. Can you remember that? John 3.17, he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Okay, so that's, that's true. Uh, and then, of course, the one we just thought of, 1 Timothy 1.15, he came into the world to save sinners. 1 John 3.5 says he came into the world to take away sin. You'll remember all of them when I read them, most all of them. Well, that's really the one I'm going to come back to, so let's hold that one. What else? Well, let, let me share something with you. I don't want to pretend I'm above you in this. As I'm preparing my notes, I know all these things are in there, you know, but I'm thinking I want to get this organized. And so I go ahead and I, and I do the research to get it in order. And every one of them I know, but I felt badly that though I can identify them, if I had to sit down and just say from the scratch, what are some of the New Testament statements for the mission of Jesus? I came into the world what? You know, we only think of certain ones. But let me just, look how rich the New Testament teaching is. 1 Timothy 1.15, he came into the world to save sinners. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. Mark 1.38, he came to preach. Luke 4.18, he came to preach the gospel. John 18.37, he came to bear witness to the truth. Mark 2.17, he came to call sinners to repentance. Matthew 10.34, he came to send a sword. Luke 12.15, he came to give division among men. Luke 19.10, he came to seek and save the lost. Mark 10.45, this is the one I wish you all had remembered. This is the first one that came to my mind as I did this little drill. He came to minister to others and to present his life a ransom for sin. John 3.17, he came to save the world, not condemn it. John 10.10, 10, I, I came to give them life and that more abundant. Romans 8.3, he came to condemn sin in the flesh. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, he was sent to redeem those under the law. 1 John 3.5, he came to take away sin. 1 John 3.8, he came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 4.10, he came to be the propitiation for our sins. Boy, it's, I mean, it's amazing. People, you know, in, outside the church, they look at the life of Jesus and they say, what was that all about? They say, boy, you're pretty ignorant of the Bible because the Bible over and over again tells you what his life was all about and why he was here and what the purpose of it all was. But there's something else I want to say. And that's that I don't think we tend to think in categories of what our author in Hebrews is now setting before us. Why did Jesus come into this world? Well, we think he came to save people. We think of saving categories. He came to present his life a ransom. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to call and to seek the lost. But the author of Hebrews says he came to obey. That was the purpose of Jesus' life, obedience. The biblical answer, which is often overlooked, is the one that is stressed by the author of Hebrews. Came, Jesus came to obey God's will. Verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I am come to do thy will, O God. Look at uh, John 4, verse 34. John 4, 34. 
Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work. That's the very sustenance of my life, to do what God told me to do. That, that reminds me, conceptually, it's not the same linguistic figure of speech. But remember how Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man lives not just by that internal sustenance uh, that you take into your stomach, but he lives by what goes into his ears, the word of God and obedience. Jesus now says, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's the sustenance of my life, obedience. Look at John, the sixth chapter, verse 38. Jesus will say this explicitly, For I am come down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Why did Jesus come into the world? To do the will of the Father, the one who sent him. And what was God's will? The interesting thing is that in Psalm 40, doing the will of God amounted to obeying the commandments of God, if you will, the moral requirements of God's word. Jesus, however, is not speaking simply of coming into the world to do all of God's commandments, the same ones that you and I are supposed to keep, not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to lie, and so forth. Jesus says, I am given a particular commandment that I must obey. And what is that particular commandment that goes beyond the law of God that is required for all the rest of us as well? Turn to John, the 10th chapter, and I'll read uh, four or five verses here. First of all, John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then verse 15. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Then verses 17 and 18. Therefore doth the Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Now, this commandment received I from my Father. This whole chapter talking about Jesus laying down his life for the sheep, he says, this is a commandment I received from the Father. The Father sent me into this world to do something, and his commandment is that I lay down my life for the sheep. Why did he come into this world? To do the will of the one who sent him. What's the will of the one who sent him? Of course, to keep all the Ten Commandments. Psalm 40 talks about that, obeying the moral law of God. But Jesus had an additional command, one that is laid upon him uniquely, not laid upon us. You cannot lay down your life for the sheep. I cannot lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus was commanded to lay down his life for the sheep. And now you see how great significance that passage in Luke takes on when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is praying and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, and he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The will of God that was to be done there was not the decretive will of God, the predestined will. Jesus doesn't say, let me become some floatsome upon the wave of fate. 
Just take me away, God. Do your will with me. He says, let your will be done, meaning let me obey that command you gave me when I came into this world to lay down my life for the sheep. And so the author of Hebrews says, when he comes into the world, he says, God doesn't want sacrifice and offering. But I said, I've come to do your will, O God. The author of Hebrews has altered what might be considered the original intent of the psalmist when he wrote. Let's read the psalmist. The psalmist says, Sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body you did prepare for me, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I am come to do thy will, O God. The psalmist is saying, some, by the way, this is a common Old Testament theme, and I'm preaching on it Sunday, it so, it, it so happens, so come back for more later. But uh, the psalmist is saying, God doesn't take pleasure in the ceremonial rituals. He takes pleasure in obedience. Right? We, we see that, in fact, there's more than half a dozen passages in the Old Testament. You know, to obey is better than sacrifice. So um, uh, Saul is told by Samuel, Hosea 6.6. 6, tells us that um, God doesn't really want sacrifice. He wants obedience. And that's what the psalmist is telling us. Sacrifice and offering you don't want. I'm come to do your will. But the author of Hebrews kind of cranks this up theologically another notch. He says, in fact, what this shows us is that those sacrifices of the old covenant are not what God wanted finally at all. That what he wanted was his son to come and obey his will and set those sacrifices aside. Again, if you read the psalmist, you would not necessarily get that redemptive new covenant idea that God is really saying, I want obedience, an obedience unto death that will do away with the sacrifices. But the psalmist picks up, I mean, the author of Hebrews picks up where the psalmist leaves off. The psalmist, as it were, has got it. Obey God's moral law, that's more important than sacrifices. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus will obey the will of God to the point of death and thereby put aside those sacrifices. Isn't that fascinating? Some people would say he's playing fast and loose with the Old Testament. I'd say he's given a deepened understanding of the Old Testament. That that, in fact, was intended by God, but it probably was not appreciated until after the light of the new covenant dawns. But then there's one other change, and this has bothered a number of people. You have to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 40, verses 5 and 6, to appreciate this. Turn back to Psalm 40. And notice what difference we found. Let me be, I'm sorry, verse 6. Sacrifice and offering thou hast no delight in. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering have you not required. Then said I, lo, I am come. In the roll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Now let's read the quotation in Hebrews. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body didst thou prepare for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hadst no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I am come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. 
What is the major discrepancy or difference? Vicki? That's right. In the Old Testament Masoretic text, it says, actually, you have dug out my ears, which is a way of saying what? You have opened up my ears. And, of course, that fits in beautifully with what the psalmist is saying. You want me to do your will. Open my ears that I might hear your word. You have given me ears to hear. The idiom in Hebrew, you have dug open my ears. You've given me ears that can hear, that are not blocked up. You've dug open my ears. But now, in Hebrews, we don't have, you have given me ears to hear, or you have dug open my ears. You have prepared a body for me. The Septuagint agrees with the New Testament. This is a quotation from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. And so we have a discrepancy between the Masoretic text of the Hebrew and the Greek translation. How do we deal with that? Well, it's late, and I could go through all the scholarly ins and outs of what might be done, but I would suggest to you that the, Mas excuse me, the Septuagint, the Greek translators, gave a wider sense to the original Hebrew, which was true to the original, but expanded the image. Where the psalmist says, you've given me ears to hear, you've dug out my ears. Those who did the Greek translation said, you've given me a body to obey with. Not just ears, but a mouth and eyes and hands and feet, you've given me a whole body. That they treated that as part for whole, which is a poetic device, legitimate to do that. In their understanding, it was not literally the ear that was important, although, of course, doing God's will calls for hearing God's will, so opening my ears is important. But it isn't the ear per se, it's that God has given me that with which I may obey. And so they translated, you've given me a body, you've prepared a body for obedience. Why do you think, now the author of Hebrews tends to quote the Septuagint rather than the Masoretic Old Testament anyway. But even if he knew the difference between the two, I mean, if he had the two texts in front of them, I maintain that he wants this, you've given me a body, you've prepared a body for me. Why? Because it's Jesus coming into the world who says, you've prepared a body for me. It's a reference to the Incarnation, where Jesus is given a human body. Again, it's not untrue to the Hebrew original. God provided the psalmist with open ears to hear his word, an obedient set of ears. The Septuagint says, you've given me an obedient body. The author of our text says, Jesus, in particular, is given a body with which to obey. Why did Jesus have to be given a body? with which to obey. Because the obedience of Jesus, I said, goes beyond the Ten Commandments, beyond the moral law of God. The obedience of Jesus was what? To lay down his life for the sheep. And so he needed a body in which to die. Because God cannot die. We'll go back to what we got into in Sunday school and got a little goofed up on. I went and looked it up. The Catechism for Young Children... Um, I forget the number. I wrote it down. Number 47. The question is to our young children, how could the Son of God suffer? How could the Son of God suffer? The answer, Christ, the Son of God, became man 
that he might obey and suffer in our nature. He didn't suffer in his divine nature. That's impossible. God can't die. He came to suffer and die in our nature, and that required what? A human body. And so, believe me, the use of uh, Psalm 40 by the author of Hebrews here is fascinating in all three of these ways, not the least of which is he makes this a reference to the incarnation that Jesus might give up his life for the sheep. He had to have a human body in which to suffer, and in that he obeyed the will of the Father. And in obeying the will of the Father, he actually puts aside those burnt offerings and sacrifices that God never took pleasure in anyway. Well, I'm impressed. I don't know if you are, but that's really something. Now an inspired commentary is offered in verses 8 to 10, and I can be real quick about this and then we'll stop. Because what he really does is he kind of repeats himself. Now, saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you would not, neither had pleasure therein, the which are offered according to the law. He brings together two of the lines of the psalm, and he just repeats them for us, as it were. And he reminds us, now that's what the law called for, those sacrifices, but God wasn't pleased with them. And then he said, lo, I am come to do thy will. What's the effect of that? In saying this, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. The effect of that is, though you may not have understood it if you read it in David's day, you may have, think, you may have been thinking God doesn't want ritual without moral substance to it. He doesn't want burnt offerings without an obedient life. But the author says in saying that, he was really indicating that the first covenant would be taken away and the second established. For when Jesus comes to do God's will, He'll do away with those sacrifices in which he had no pleasure anyway. You see that? And notice that he doesn't use the word covenant. He puts away the first that he might establish the second. The first what? The second what? And when we think of old and new covenant categories over against the seven dispensations of our dispensational brethren, we have pretty good biblical warrant, don't we? The first and the second, the old and the new. These are the two categories the author thinks of. But then he also says in verse 10, by which will, which will is he talking about? The will of God. Lo, I have come to do thy will. By this will of God where he lays down his life for the sheep, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body, a body thou hast prepared for me. We have been sanctified by the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The will of God, according to which Christ suffered for us and established the second covenant, has sanctified us. Here the word sanctification is being used, again, part for whole, if you will. The word's being used for the whole experience and process of salvation from beginning to end, not just one part of the chain of salvation. He's talking about all that which cleanses from sin and restores us to the presence and the favor of God. Once and for all, when Jesus offered his body, we were sanctified and made perfect. In a new covenant where there is no more remembrance of sin. And the best part of all, which he did through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. The author says it never has to be repeated. Christ was perfectly adequate. All the in effectiveness, all the inadequacy, 
all the incompetence of the Levitical system has now been rectified when Jesus once and for all offered the body that God prepared for him, laid down his life to save us. It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? Do you have any questions? Ron? Yes, because he was a perfect, flawless, unblemished sacrifice. It was adequate that we um, could be saved for all eternity. We need to remember God cannot suffer. God cannot die. And so the sufferings of Christ, though they are the sufferings of the God-man, are specifically the sufferings of his human nature. It is the God-man who died, but it's not God who died. It's the God-man with respect to his human body. We've, kind of, we've done this a few times in Bible study the last year or two, haven't we? To be able to draw that distinction. The, the divine nature of God was never hungry, but Jesus was hungry. The divine nature of God does not suffer or die, but the human nature of Jesus does. Glenn? If I understand your question, the answer would be yes. God was not alienated from God. And in fact, it's interesting in that very statement, Jesus indicates that his human nature is in communion with God even at the moment that God turns his back on him. Because what's he say? Not only why have you forsaken me, but he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it is the human nature of Jesus dying on the cross. As the, he is the God-man. Remember, it's not like you have God here and man here. He is the God-man. But um, as God, he was not separated from God. As the God-man, he was. It's in virtue of his human nature that he suffers. Okay, Ron? I think the divine and human natures of Jesus... Um, went to hell. And in the Apostles' Creed, I don't think the reference is to his going to hell in the sense that 1 Peter 3 speaks of. I think the Apostles' Creed simply talks about the suffering of Christ being alienated from the Father for the sins of men. This is a real complicated thing. The Apostles' Creed uses that as he bore the curse of sin. He went to hell for us. But when 1 Peter 3 speaks of Jesus going to hell, I think there it's not for suffering. Jesus there goes to hell to proclaim his victory over the demons. And that he did in, in, with respect to his divine and human natures both. Okay, we need, we're going to uh, get into trouble if we don't stop at this point. These are good questions. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer. And Chris, could I call on you to pray for us?
study this evening. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us to learn the science. Continue, Lord, to teach us to your voice clear that we are need of being taught by him. Continue, Lord, to bless this fellowship this evening as we gather together in prayer also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um.